Just bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer one more time to ask the Lord's blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, You have told us in Your Word that man does not live by bread alone. We live on every word that comes from Your mouth. say you are watching over your word to perform it, and that your word does not return void without accomplishing all that you intend for it. So rain down your word on us now, we pray. Make it clear. Feed your sheep. Tend your lambs. Do good to your flock. Bind up the broken, heal the sick, instruct the simple, make wise the foolish. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. A common refrain among those disillusioned with Christianity is that they love Jesus but hate the church. That sentiment is both understandable and problematic. It's understandable because we've all been disappointed by churches and their leaders. It's problematic, though, because churchless Christianity is not a thing in the New Testament. In fact, it's quite the opposite in Acts 2. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 2, where the point is that God's Spirit uses gospel preaching to create Christians who commit themselves to four things together. God's Spirit uses gospel preaching to create Christians who commit themselves to four things together, together. The context is Peter's first sermon at Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit being explained in that preaching as the fulfillment of God's purposes from Joel in Psalm 16. Here, Acts 2.42 is the big idea that Luke goes on to illustrate in the picture of local church life that results from Peter's Christ-centered sermon on the Old Testament explaining the outpouring of the Spirit. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Luke substantiates that sentence in the paragraph that follows. Verses 43 to 47. In verse 43, the apostles' teaching is revered and feared in every heart because it's confirmed with apostolic signs and wonders. Signs and wonders done by the very people who are teaching God's Word. In verses 44 to 45, the fellowship happens as they're all together and sharing all things in common, not just talking about football.
The word common is the word koina from the same word for fellowship in verse 42, koinonia. And this fellowship in verse 42 is worked out in voluntary selling, sharing, and giving in verse 45. That's fellowship. Verse 46, the breaking of bread from verse 42 is happening both publicly in the temple and from house to house where they are sharing their food together with joy. And in verse 47, the prayers are expressed in praising God. The results of all this are recorded in verses 47, B and C, where the church has favor with all people and the Lord adds to their number those who were being saved among them. So let's read verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now before we move on to the outline, I want us to meditate on the main subject, verb, and object of verse 42. They were devoting themselves. Who is they? It's not just the apostles. It's the 3,000 new converts from verse 41. In fact, 3,000 is the very last word of verse 41 in the original language. And they were devoting themselves is the first phrase of verse 42. The they is the 3,000, not just the 120 or the 12. They were the ones doing the devoting, the whole congregation. Notice, the apostles are not devoting the congregation. The congregation is devoting themselves. All these people, the whole congregation, ordinary Christians with ordinary jobs and ordinary families and ordinary problems just like you, were devoting themselves without someone else having to devote them. Devoting, dedicating, prioritizing, organizing their lives around, centering their lives on, orienting themselves towards, putting it first rather than giving it the leftovers of their time and energy. Not doing it if they felt like it or if it was convenient. Devoting. They were, as the dictionary definition says, busily engaged in these things. Even at the expense of doing other things. Because obviously you cannot devote yourself to something without sacrificing anything. Have you ever devoted yourself to something? then you had to sacrifice something else, did you not? 
because you loved the thing to which you were devoting yourself. And you thought it was worth it. Devotion without sacrifice simply does not exist. It cannot exist. They all had lots of other things to do, I'm sure. But men had to keep work in the box. Women had to manage and train their children around these priorities. The shy had to come out of their shell. Entertainments had to take a back seat. Travel schedules had to be modified, limited. Leisure had to be abbreviated, cut short. Convenience could no longer be the controlling criteria of whether they were going to participate in these four priorities. Devotion ignores convenience. This devotion, these priorities is what it looked like for people to repent at Peter's Pentecost preaching. This is what preaching produced, devotion. To these public priorities with other people who were not perfect, This congregational devotion is the portrait of Christian repentance. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is what that looked like. This is what that produced, devotion. When they repented from their sins, they repented into this way of congregational life. The tense of the verb indicates that they did not just do it once or as a fad. It does not say they devoted as if in a single act, nor was it sporadic or spasmodic, kind of in fits and starts. It is consistent. They were devoting, ongoing, continual, habitual, faithful. It's an imperfect tense verb. And finally, They were devoting themselves. Again, this devotion is not coerced. It's voluntary. The apostles did not have to pressure the congregation into it or keep insisting on it. These 3,000 people were devoting themselves willingly, eagerly, voluntarily, freely, happily, with zeal. They did not need to be constantly cajoled or guilted or reminded to prioritize these habits. They were devoting themselves willingly from inward compulsion, joy, zeal, eagerness, and love. You couldn't keep them away. When Hebrews 13, 17 tells Christians to let their leaders keep watch over their souls with joy and not with groaning, this devotion is a big part of what that means. When a congregation devotes itself to the life of the church in this way, 
that, that is what makes the oversight of elders a joy and keeps it from being a burden. I would rather you never cook me another meal, and I love your cooking. I would rather you never cook me another meal if it was between you devoting yourself to these things and you cooking me a meal when I'm sick or when my wife is sick. I'd rather you just devote yourself to these things. I'll take care of my own meals. I can grill a hot dog. But I can't devote you to these things. You have to devote yourself. Again, there were other things these people could have been doing, but they sacrificed those other things to devote themselves to these things. You, you can't devote yourself to everything. They were busily engaged with these things on a continual basis, committed themselves to this understanding and practice of these priorities for the Christian life together. This is what it meant for them to repent. They were baptized into this view and practice of this kind of Christian truth and community. They did not all do it differently. They did it, they did the same things together. So if you criticize the churches and say, we need to get back to the pattern of the church that we find in Acts, because you're real excited about reading Acts, and you think, man, that was, that was power, that was glory, that was effectiveness, that was ministry, that was love, that was joy, that was faithfulness. I wonder, is this what you mean? Do you want to be devoted like them? Do you want to organize your life around these priorities like that? Are you willing to do that? Or do you just think other people should do that so that whenever you show up, other people are here already? Are you leading the way, being an example in this kind of devotion? I think some of you are. Many of you are. Or do you just mean that someone else should be doing everything differently that you don't really hold yourself to doing so that you can enjoy the fruit of their labors whenever you decide that it's convenient for you to attend or serve or give or pray? Do you really want to be an Acts 2 church? Is that just something you say? Well, if you really want it, then Christian, don't make other Christians twist your arm. And you devote yourself to these four things, even when they're inconvenient, even when they cost you other opportunities to do other things that would be good. you want a healthy church to attend, then what are you willing to contribute to its health? Now, having said all that, I want to speak to your heart. All those things are true. We all need to hear all of them. But I know some of you are coming out of a hurtful, sad, confusing, disillusioning church situation. 
because you've told me. And you may be sitting there thinking, hey, I had been devoting myself. I was doing that for the last 10 years. And you feel burned. And now you hear this and you might think, never again. Not me. I did that already. I was devoting myself and it blew up in my face. It backfired. It cut me to the heart. I'm still bleeding. And I just don't know if I can ever commit like that again. At least not yet. I don't know if I can put my heart out there like that. I feel like protecting myself from that vision of church life. Not giving myself to it because Christians are still sinners and they stand against me. So I'd just rather get here late and leave early and not talk to anybody and listen to the sermon and sing the songs or only talk to people I already know because relationships mean risk. And I found that out the hard way. Because when I risked it, I lost big time and I don't feel like getting over that yet. Maybe not ever. So I see this in the Bible, Pastor, and I agree with you. That's what that sentence means in Acts 2.42. I know. You're not telling anything I don't know. That is how it should be now. That's how it was in Acts 2. But that's not how it is. Not for me. That's not how it was. I tried that already. It didn't work. Poor Christian, I know. I know. We know. We sympathize with you. We understand. Probably better than you think. I've been through that myself. Others here have been through similar things. We know what it feels like when a church disappoints you and hurts you and turns against you misunderstands you, sins against you without realizing it or admitting it. When they criticize you, when they reject you. But dear friend, you must know that your experience and your feelings cannot be the arbiter of all truth and right if you are going to be a Christian. Your feelings are not the boss. Christ's truth must interpret, correct, inform your experience and your feelings. Obedience does not become optional when it gets hard. Obedience is still in your best interests. Even when it seems risky and scary and counterintuitive to your self-protective instincts to just curl up in a ball and stay home. Hurting Christian, you fell off your bike. You skinned up your elbows and your knees pretty bad. You may have even hit your head hard. 
when you fell, but you cannot quit riding your bike just because you fell off, just because somebody else pushed you off. The sooner you get back on your bike, the sooner you can enjoy the ride again. But if you never get back on, then you're the one losing out. But we're losing out too. We want your committed fellowship and we need your devotion. But maybe you think, well, that devotion was great for them in Acts 2 because that was the pristine church in all its early purity. And if I was living back then, I'd be all in too because that was the virgin bride of Christ and she was clean. They didn't know what I know about church people. And the stuff that was true about church people now, that wasn't true about them then. They didn't have to deal with what I'm dealing with in the churches today. Our friend, you are wrong about that. You are wrong. Acts 5 is coming, mind you. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit about how much of the profits of the sale of their field they actually gave to the church. Acts 6 is coming. Greekified Jewish widows getting shortchanged in the soup line while the kosher Jewish widows get all they want. How would you feel if that was your grandma? Acts 8 is coming. Involuntary migration from Jerusalem. Acts 15 is coming. Conflict over whether the Gentiles have to live kosher to pass their membership interview. Acts 20 is coming where Paul has to warn the Ephesian elders that vicious wolves will rise up from within their own local church, maybe even from within their own elder team. And this is not to mention the New Testament letters, factions and immorality at Corinth, heresy at Colossae and Galatia, false teachers in Timothy's church at Ephesus and Titus's church on Crete, cowardice in Hebrews, selfish ambition and favoritism in James, self-serving leaders like Diotrephes in 3 John. And that's not to mention the letters to the churches in Revelation. Friend, listen, there has literally never been a better time to join a local church than right now. There hasn't been. There was never a perfect time to join a church. You're wrong. You have to become a biblical realist in your church life. You have to be able to commit without the expectation that your commitment will be perfectly reciprocated to you. Because it won't be. Not perfectly. But listen, isn't that just being like Jesus? Do you think Jesus' commitment to the church is perfectly reciprocated to him? I don't think so. Now you know what it's like to be Jesus. You know the fellowship of his sufferings a little bit. The Christian life, church life, is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. Get used to the cross of Christian discipleship as you experience it in the church. You will serve yourself well to develop thick skin while you maintain a tender heart. Friend, you cannot 
take to heart everybody, everything that everybody in the church says about you or behind your back. You cannot be so concerned about what everybody else thinks about you. You believe what Jesus says about you. And if you do, then what other people say about you, even within the church, is not going to matter so much. Above all, you have to let the truth of Scripture stabilize you if your church life gets wobbly. But if you join a church that encourages you to orient your life around these things, then you'll be sacrificing yourself for the right things. And those habits will nourish and strengthen you to endure when the chips are down in your local church. So, first point of the sermon. Christians devote themselves to sound teaching together. Now, what is this teaching? It was a Christ-centered teaching of the Old Testament, the gospel proclamation of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and pouring out His Spirit on His people, preached from all of Scripture. It was Luke 24, the fulfillment of all God's laws and promises in Christ, proclaimed to the congregation and applied together by the whole church. It's the way Peter preached Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110 at Pentecost. It's how Jesus indicated that his kingdom had come because he had ascended to his Father's right hand and poured out his Spirit on the churches. It's the preaching of repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ, submission to Jesus as King in all things, as the way to be reconciled to the Creator God that we rebelled against in our sin and selfishness and indifference towards him. It's appealing to sinners to be saved from this crooked generation of humanity, like Peter did, testifying to Jesus' resurrection from all of Scripture. But wait a minute, why doesn't Luke say that they were devoting themselves to Jesus' teaching? I mean, wouldn't that be even more faithful? Well, the apostles were Jesus' own hand-picked, personally authorized representatives. They were the church's authorized link back to the authority of Jesus. It's their doctrine preserved in their preaching and ultimately in the New Testament documents themselves that serves as our doctrinal link to Jesus. This book and our adherence to it is evangelical apostolic succession. We do not think that we have a personal succession of links back to Peter, as the Catholic Church does. We think we have a doctrinal link back to the doctrine of the apostles. That's doctrinal apostolic succession, and that's the only succession that matters. Jesus himself promised that he would guide these apostles into all truth by his Holy Spirit. And so we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching as the authorized representatives and ambassadors for the truth of Jesus himself as we find that teaching preserved in the documents of Scripture. That's what makes the apostles so special. Jesus picked them. And he proved that he picked them by continuing to work miracles through them after he had ascended to God's right hand to show that they were his representatives, not other people. And they had his teaching correct. 
And that is what makes those apostles unrepeatable in history, no matter what some pseudo-miracle worker tells you on TV as the reason to give him money. There are no apostles today because we already have the official writings and doctrines of Jesus' hand-picked apostles in the New Testament itself. It is misleading at best and deceitful at worst for a man to call himself an apostle today. And what did it look for it like for them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, they committed to hearing it, trusting it, obeying it, and ordering their lives around it. They kept on showing up regularly to hear it preached and taught in public. For us, this means showing up when the doors of this building are open. Sunday school, church, prayer meeting, Bible study. The doctrine of the apostles is available to you here in all of our public meetings. Take advantage of them. If you're frustrated that you're not growing in Christ as quickly or maturely as you thought you would, and yet you're not maximizing the multiple weekly meetings of this church, you have our answer about what to do about that. Start maximizing them. There's more here for you than you are taking advantage of. So, Devote yourself to showing up and hearing this apostolic doctrine week in and week out. Yes, that's just the beginning. When they heard it, they feared. Now, this is not abject fear or terror, watching a horror flick or the paranoia of what awful thing might happen next. No, this is the fear of, in the sense of taking the teaching seriously. They were in awe. There was a real sobriety about what's being taught and what that means for their lives. You don't just let this teaching go in one ear and out the other or serve time until lunch and football. We're not just keeping up appearances here. This is not just cultural Christianity. We, do, we devote ourselves not only to being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word, as we're studying in James on Wednesday nights. They did not just listen to the teaching of the church. They accepted it. They applied it. They did something about it. They felt a certain way about it, and they submitted to it. They took it seriously. This is the only way local church life can work. If the congregation accepts the teaching of the church, both its teaching on salvation and its teaching on the church itself and how you can benefit best from it. And this fear was connected first to the content of the apostles' teaching, but it also extended in Acts 2 to the wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. These wonders and signs were done not by the whole congregation, but by the apostles themselves. The apostles were not teaching everybody else how to tap into their apostolic power so that every Christian could do the signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. There was no sign and wonder seminar taught by Peter bi-weekly. There was no school for supernatural ministry. The apostles are the only ones doing these signs, but even that isn't quite how Luke narrates it. He says these wonders and signs were happening through the apostles. God, God was the one who was doing these signs through them. And as we saw last week, these wonders and signs are connected here with the apostolic teaching, which is the new revelation of Jesus as the one who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies, especially about the outpouring of God's Spirit on God's people at Pentecost. The fear of the disciples then, their awe, 
is both in response to the apostles' teaching and in response to the wonders that are happening through the same apostles. And why are those miracles happening through the apostles? God is working those miracles through these teaching apostles in order to confirm them as the authoritative teachers of Jesus' authoritative doctrine. That's why. Those miracles are saying something not only about the teaching, but about the apostles themselves as the official representatives handpicked by Jesus himself. These miracles confirm new revelation and the apostles who brought it and taught it. That's how they function. That's the reason for being of miracles. God gives these miracles to be performed through the apostles to testify to the truth of apostolic preaching and doctrine and to testify to the specialness of the apostles themselves as Jesus picked them. After all, this combination of words, wonders, and signs happens most often in the Old Testament as a reference to the miracles that God worked through Moses in the plagues of Egypt, at the Red Sea, the wilderness during the Exodus. Signs and wonders are for those kind of times. Those kind of times are extremely, extremely, extremely rare in human history and even in biblical history. The Exodus, the conquest of Canaan, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, that's it. All these were times of supernatural revelation when miracles happened to confirm that it is God speaking to his people and acting on their behalf to save them. Now, of course, signs and wonders can also be performed by people who are not apostles. But when that happens in Scripture, those wonder workers are not Christians. They are either pagan magicians or false teachers posing to be Christian teachers. Pharaoh's magicians in Egypt turned their staffs into snakes, just like Moses did with his in Exodus 7. Jesus himself warned us in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And that is happening all over the world today in places called churches, and at events called revivals by leaders who call themselves Christians and who sometimes insist that you call them apostles. In other words, do not demand to see signs and wonders today. We saw all the way through the book of John what Jesus thinks of people who demand signs and wonders even of him. Paul said, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You don't want to love the Bible?
guess what you will be susceptible to? False Christs and false prophets who work false signs and false wonders. You don't remember the true signs and wonders of God's redemptive acts in history at the Exodus and in Jesus' ministry? You don't remember those signs and wonders? Those aren't enough for you? then you will be susceptible to believing false signs and false wonders from false Christs and false prophets. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You want the pleasure of being told that God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy? You want to believe that that's the Christian message? If you are stubborn enough, God will let you believe that. He'll turn you over to it. Don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. Reject the truth of Scripture and you'll believe false signs and wonders to your own destruction and probably to the emptying of your own wallet. What people were devoting themselves to in Acts 2 were not the apostles' signs and wonders. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and by God's power, in God's sovereign timing, that teaching was verified by signs and wonders that God himself chose to do through the apostles. According to John Woodhouse, there are two kinds and only two kinds of signs and wonders. There are redemptive signs and wonders and there are rival signs and wonders. Among all the things that, first, that the first Christians devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching has to come first because it is the doctrine that defines and feeds the fellowship and informs the prayers. The fellowship, the commonality, the camaraderie is in the teaching and doctrine that they share together in Christ. The sacrificial giving is because of the sacrificial Christ whom they preached. The prayers of praise are for the truth taught in the teaching. We break physical bread together because we share the bread of life together. Doctrine shapes Practice. Teaching creates and sustains relationship. Gospel-thick teaching creates gospel-thick community. Gospel-thin teaching creates gospel-thin community. Thick culture is created and sustained by thick doctrine, but thin, brittle, easily breakable culture is created by thin, weak, porous doctrine. Strong doctrine creates strong Christians and strong churches. That book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, should have a church version to it. Rich church, poor church, not monetarily, but doctrinally and relationally. Rich doctrine, rich community. Community is only as thick as the truth and practice we hold in common. So if you want a high-torque, low-friction, 
well-oiled, high-functioning community that gets traction, then you should demand and support high-viscosity doctrine from the pulpit. But if all you want is coffee shop community, hi, nice to see you, community, well, you can get that from preaching that sips like the froth on your latte. If you want to get something out of this teaching, though, you have to devote yourself to it. Showing up to hear it is just the beginning. You have to digest it, act on it, depend on it, trust it, organize your life around it. Friend, if that's not what you're doing here, then I would respectfully ask you, what are you doing here? It's not that we don't want you here. It's that we want you to devote yourself to what you're hearing here. Second, Christians devote themselves to meeting needs together. This is to giving. They're together in the same place. All who have believed were together and had all things in common. That doesn't mean they're all living together in a compound and signing over their house deeds and life savings to the church. This is not Waco. This is not a, not a cult. Verse 45 explains how verse 44 worked. Look there in your Bibles. And, that's probably an epexegetical chi. In other words, that is, that is, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's voluntary liquidation, not coerced confiscation. The idea of verse 44 is that everyone took the attitude, what's mine is yours. It's still mine, but if you need it, it's yours. That's the idea of verse 45, as any had need. This is not a religious Ponzi scheme. Peter's not a Jim Baker figure swindling people out of money with crocodile tears and big plans for an evangelical Disney world. Nor is he Bernie Madoff swindling people into fraudulent investments and only paying them back as later investors paid him. It's voluntary, but it's also need-based within the community. Just as in verse 42, the Christians devoted themselves voluntarily to those four things, so here they are voluntarily devoting themselves to meeting each other's visible practical needs. Nobody's twisting anybody's arms. It's coming from the heart. Nobody has to tell anybody to do anything. It's voluntary. It's not coercive. They were selling their property and belongings and distributing the proceeds to people as anyone might have need. So notice this is voluntary selling of what is still private property. It's not mandatory. These people are not having their property confiscated or impounded. They're selling their property voluntarily. The word possessions here is a word that probably uh, means property in the sense of land. That's what Barnabas is selling at the end of chapter 4. That's what Ananias and Sapphira sell at the beginning of chapter 5. Land, property. Here, that understanding of the word possessions keeps it from being redundant with the word belongings in the same verse. They're selling their land and their stuff to provide for poor people as anyone had need. And notice what Peter told Ananias in Acts 5.4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Implication, yes, it did remain your own. 
The property Ananias sold was still his own private property before he sold it. This is not communism. It's communal, but it's not communist. The apostles are not invoking eminent domain or foreclosing on the private real estate of its members. Nobody's going to do that to you in this church. So those of you who came to the new inquirers class on Friday night, it's okay. We're not going to ask you to sell your house. You can, you can own your home and be a member of good standing in this church. And we won't tell you to sell it because somebody else in the church is poor. If you want to do that, you can. But we're not going to make you. The members themselves are cheerfully selling real estate to provide for the material needs of others. This voluntary character of the selling is what keeps the charity distributive rather than redistributive. Redistribution of wealth in the modern sense happens from the top down by political coercion. The distribution that happens here is free and private, not coerced by governmental or ecclesial power. So the earthly Christians did have a social ethic, especially towards one another, but that did not make them socialists. They were a generous community, but that did not make them communists. Notice the pronouns. They were selling and they were distributing as any had need. It seems like all the people who were selling and all the people who were selling were also the same people who were distributing. This is private charity. Same individuals who sold their stuff are the individuals who distributed the proceeds of what they sold as they saw needs, as they saw fit. But as remarkable as that is, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing scandalous, nothing communist, nothing fraudulent, nothing unfaithful, nothing coercive, and nothing abusive. It's just private, voluntary, cheerful, from the heart, generosity. Christians sometimes voluntarily decide to liquidate assets for those who have nothing. Christians do that when other Christians need it. Third, Christians devote themselves to eating together. Hospitality. Look at how this happens in verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The main verb in that sentence is they receive their food. So the main thing being described in verse 46 is their eating habits. Not nutritionally, but socially. The phrase attending the temple together is literally devoting themselves with one mind in the temple. And that phrase describes their receiving their food. So on a daily basis, regularly, frequently, normally, they're meeting up with each other in public at the temple, expressing their like-mindedness with each other in Christian doctrine and practice, staying committed to the public life of the church together, receiving their food together, nurturing their relationships with each other over food and talking together about the Lord Jesus as they ate. They liked potluck. They're also breaking bread together in their homes, so they have regular public table fellowship in the temple and larger groups and regular domestic table fellowship as they show each other gospel hospitality at home. They're all sharing all these meals with each other in verse 46 with glad and generous hearts. There's no resentment of what the hospitality cost them. There's no begrudging the time and energy it takes to foster the relationships. No one's thinking, wow, this is a little much. 
It's all joyful, all sincere, all straight from the heart. They loved it. This is normal for them. This is what the Christian life looked like. What it meant to repent. This is what they repented into. They prioritized it because they loved it. What was so noticeable about these Christians was not merely their private morality. It wasn't just that they didn't cuss or didn't get drunk or didn't cheat on their wives or on their taxes. There was lots of first century Greek philosophical types that liked to be portrayed and to portray themselves as ethical. It was more than that for these Christians. It was their life and love together as a local church community that was so distinctive. This didn't happen anywhere else in Roman society. This is what Luke remembers. Not they didn't cuss, but man, they loved each other and they loved being with each other. They're always hanging out in the temple, having each other over in their homes, eating, talking, counseling, encouraging, teaching, laughing. They're not withholding themselves from each other in the least. There was no standoffishness. They were all embracing the life of the church family together. Now, I get it. Some of you are thinking, I'm an introvert. That sounds like a nightmare. Day by day, you have got to be kidding me. I'm doing good enough to get week by week. Especially with some of you people. (laughs) This sounds exhausting. Well, this is, after all, a summary, so... It's a general feel, tone, appearance, remembrance of the time period, and we should probably leave allowance for individual variance and application based on temperament and circumstance. But when all is said and done, when all those qualifications have been added, when you love Jesus, you love his people. When you're united to Christ, that unites you with Christ's visible body, the church. You can't help it. And I've seen it in many of you who call yourself introverts. I look at you calling yourself an introvert, and I'm like... Yeah, but you're with a lot of church people a lot of the time. I'm glad for that. Fourth and finally, Christians devote themselves to praying together. Summary statement of verse 42 said these 3,000 new believers devoted themselves to the prayers, definite and plural. It's hard to be sure which precise prayers Luke might be talking about, if any. Maybe it's the Lord's Prayer, maybe some other set form or outline of prayer or prayers that had become traditional in the early church. Or maybe the different kinds of prayers. Verse 47 says they were praising God as they gathered in the temple and in each other's homes. That could include both praying as we normally think of it, a prayer of praise, but also singing, praising God, talking to God in songs of praise. You might do well to think of the ACTS acronym for different categories of praying. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration is praise. Confession is admitting our specific sins to God. Thanksgiving is expressing gratitude to God for all He's done for us in Christ and in His providence for us. And supplication is just asking God for the blessings that He's promised to give us and for the things He's told us to ask Him for. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You notice that we have those kinds of prayers in our services, intentionally. What's noteworthy here is that these early Christians are dedicating themselves to praying together. The whole passage is emphasizing the relational and corporate aspects of the church's life together. So it'd be odd to think that Luke is intending a privatized, interiorized, individualized prayer in this context. Listen, guys. Christians pray together. 
Full stop. That's just what they do. They're not embarrassed about it. They're not nervous about it. They're devoted to it from the outset of their Christian lives. I mean, these people in Acts 2 have been Christians for all of five minutes, and they're praying together. They're devoted to it. And this is how they start out. Their devotion to the apostles' teaching would have taught them the kind of things that they should be praying from Scripture. Their devotion to fellowship, to sharing of possessions and life together would have exposed them to good models of how to ask, how to give, how to thank, how to express need. Their devotion to breaking of bread with each other in private and at the temple would have enabled them to observe each other praying and learn from others' experiences and examples in prayer. And as they devoted themselves to praying together, they'd have been hearing each other pray and practicing their own public praying themselves. We do this on Sunday nights. So members of Grace Covenant, I know that some of you are nervous about praying. Some of you have told me you're nervous about praying. You're afraid I'm going to call on you. Is they going to call on me to pray? But some of you don't just avoid eye contact. You, you avoid the meeting altogether. I know others of you just aren't used to going to church twice on a Sunday, and I get it. But the fear of public praying is far worse than the experience of it. You want to get better at it? Come listen to us do it, and then practice it yourself. Praying with other Christians is not optional. It's not an extra. We, we don't view Sunday night attendance as extra credit in this church. It's just what we do. Because that's what Christians do. They pray together, even when it's inconvenient. And look, praying with other Christians is not something to be nervous about. We're all cheering you on. We're your best friends in Christ. What do you think we're going to do or say if you botch it? If you stumble over your words? If you pause for 80 seconds not knowing what to say? You think we're going to be like, well, for crying out loud, would you learn how to pray? We're not going to do that to you. We love you. You are free to fail in your public prayers here on Sunday nights. It's okay. You got to learn. You got to start somewhere. And we know that. We know that. We're going to delight in you. Listen, how do parents respond when their children are learning to talk and they create their own childish version of words? The parents love it. It's hilarious to them in an endearing way. Now, if that goes on too long, it becomes concerning. But the way to get better at corporate prayer is not by staying home to avoid it. We all miss you when you're not praying with us. I'd rather hear you stumble through your prayer with awful grammar and trouble holding it together emotionally than have you stay home because you don't think you can do it well enough. Get in here with us on Sunday nights. Of course, if the reason you don't attend on Sunday nights is simply that it's boring to you, then you've got way bigger problems in your heart. 
than just I go to a church that expects me to be there on Sunday nights. This is the place for us to be as Christians on Sunday nights. Besides, what else are you going to do on Sunday night that you can't do some other time of the week? You're getting ready for work? You can do that on Saturday. You're doing chores? Do them on Saturday. Devote yourself to prayer with us, Christian. Attend with us on Sunday nights for six weeks in a row, and you see if you don't grow from it. I dare you. I know it's inconvenient. Most people don't like going to the same place two times in one day. I don't like going to the same place two times on one day. If I have to go to Walmart or Costco or Sam's or whatever, I want to go once and come back and be like, oh, got everything. And if my wife tells me, uh, no, you didn't get everything, I'm like, mm, I got to go back. I was just there. I know. You were just at church. And we're saying, yep, come back again. That's right. What better day to do that than on the Lord's day? Give him the whole thing. You see what happens. Fifth and finally, the results are up to Jesus. The Lord added to their number that day, or day by day, those who were being saved. Jesus did that. Peter didn't add to them. The Lord added them. Christian ministry in the local church devotes itself to faithfulness and leaves fruitfulness to the Lord. Only the Lord can convert. Giving the gifts of repentance and faith is the Lord's work, not man's work. We cannot make a single convert unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So we work hard and we pray hard. We concentrate on faithfulness. We try to be as clear and kind as we can in our evangelism and disciple making and we leave the results to the Lord. But notice the mathematical language. The Lord added to their number. The Lord is doing math. He's counting. This is the same verb we saw in verse 41 last week. They were added that day, about 3,000 souls. Now it's clarified that the Lord is the one doing the adding. But if God is adding, then that counts. (laughs) And if what God adds counts, then shouldn't we count it too? We should keep track of what God adds to us. That's the biblical theological idea behind careful accounting of our membership numbers. We're not in it for inflated statistics, but if God adds people to our number, then we had better be careful to add them too. We should recognize that he added them. Part of Jesus being our good shepherd is keeping track of all of us as his sheep. If that's so, then part of being a good under-shepherd of Christ as an elder is keeping count and keeping track of who he's entrusted to our care. That's one reason that membership matters. We keep track of the souls the Lord has entrusted to us because he counts them. We count them. But how did these additions happen? Well, yes, of course, the Lord added them, but were there any human circumstances that God used as a means of persuasion or instruments to do that work? Well, from the looks of it, verse 42 to 47, it wasn't an evangelism program or visitation night or tract distribution or even street preaching. It looks like it was the corporate life of the congregation we've just been talking about. As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, the prayers, the Lord added to their number. The Lord adding to their number is associated, at least circumstantially, with the corporate life and testimony of the church. It's just like Jesus said, John 13, 34 and 35, just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's horizontal. The church and its life together is God's evangelism program. We're it. Our love for each other, our devotion to these things together shows the world we follow Jesus. We're on his side. We're on his team. We're with his people. Friends, look back over what happens when you become a Christian in Acts 2. You enter into the life of a local church. The New Testament simply does not know of a genuine believer who is unconcerned to join himself to Christ's visible people in a local church. When you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, as Peter preached him from the Old Testament on Pentecost, you start running with a new crowd. But it's deeper than that. You're baptized into a new family. You get a whole new set of friendships, relationships. You have new spiritual moms and dads, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, nieces and nephews. You become part of Christ's visible body. Jesus calls you to that. What the gospel produces all the way through Acts, everywhere, every time, in every city, is a local church. Every time. An imperfect, messy, risky, still prone to sin and error, all too human local church. And you and I, Christian, are both part of the solution of the local church and part of the problem of the local church all at the same time. We all contribute to the blessings and we all contribute to the difficulties. Relationships always involve risk. Commitment is always risky. I can't take the risk of church membership out of church membership for you. Nobody can. Anywhere. But that's why our ultimate trust is not in each other. Our ultimate trust is in our Heavenly Father and in Jesus as our Good Shepherd. He will care for us even if those in our church disappoint us or even mistreat us. So, wounded Christian, you are not the first or only one to have been hurt by a church. What you do with that hurt is the test of your discipleship to Jesus and your love for his bride. His bride still has blemishes. But Jesus didn't marry the church for her looks. He didn't marry the church because she was already beautiful without him. He married the church to make her beautiful with him. Christian, you are part of that. And we hope that you want to be part of it with us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a sweet picture of community under the apostolic teaching. We confess that our own life as a local church often falls far short of what you have pictured to us in Scripture. Forgive us for our failings, our indifference, our sporadicness. May we devote ourselves 
to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with one another, to the breaking of bread with each other, and to praying together. And may you see fit, by your grace and power, to add to our number daily those who are being saved, so that Jesus would be glorified, so that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.